This episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good evening and welcome to AUA's Incorporating the AUA SUO Guideline on Advanced Prostate Cancer into Practice Live Virtual Course. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluation and general feedback so that we can continuously improve our programs. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this internet live activity for a maximum of 1.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Course handouts from the presentations have been made available to you. Please visit AUA University to access the handouts. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on AUA University immediately following the course. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit the AUA University to view faculty and education council disclosures. The AUA would like to thank Estellas and Pfizer Inc., Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck and Company Inc. and Pfizer Inc. for providing an independent educational grant and supported this activity. Coding advice given during presentations are the opinion of the presenters and may not have been vetted through the AUA for accuracy. Please verify accuracy prior to reporting on medical claims. Finally, I'd like to introduce and extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Borgian, for this for his time, talent, and expertise in developing this program. Dr. Stephen Borgian is the David and Ann Luther Chair of the Department of Urology, the Carl Rosen Professor of Urology, and the Director of the Urologic Oncology Fellowship at Mayo Clinic. I will now turn the course over to Dr. Borgian. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm really honored and, and, and grateful to have this opportunity to participate in this interesting program this evening. Um, our goal in this activity is to address new and emerging treatment options for patients with advanced prostate cancer. We're going to specifically focus on the recently updated 2023 AUA-SUO guidelines. We're going to cover currently available agents, those in development, novel imaging, and the expanded role for genetic testing. Very importantly, I want to spend a moment by introducing each of our three experts and thanking them personally for spending an evening with us um, teaching um, Dr. Michael Cookson, who is the professor and chair in the Department of Urology at the University of Oklahoma. He there holds the Donard, Donald Albers Endowed Chair in Urology. He is past president of the Society of Urologic Oncology and the South Central Section of the AUA. He has served as the previous chair of the AUA's CRPC guidelines and is currently the vice chair for the Advanced Prostate Cancer Guidelines. He's co-authored over 250 peer-reviewed journal publications and we welcome and look forward to his content expertise here. Dr. Todd Morgan is the Jack Lapides Research Professor and Chief of Urologic Oncology at the University of Michigan. He runs a laboratory there as a translational surgeon scientist with the primary focus being identifying clinically relevant molecular approaches to predict response and resistance in men with pro to treatment in men with prostate cancer. He has served on the AUA Advanced Prostate Cancer Guidelines the NCCN prostate cancer guidelines, as well as the ASCO clinically localized prostate cancer guideline as well. Welcome, Dr. Morgan. 
We're also honored to have Dr. Alicia Morgans with us, who is a genitourinary medical oncologist and a member, a medical director of the Adult Survivorship Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. She is a clinician and physician investigator specializing in investigation, investigating the complications of systemic therapy. She has been awarded several federal and foundation grants to in specifically investigate the cognitive effects of hormone treatments in advanced prostate cancer patients, as well as treatment decision-making in men with metastatic prostate cancer. She has nationally recognized expertise in patient reported outcomes and quality of life studies in men with advanced prostate cancer. So really very much welcome Drs. Cookson, Morgans, and Morgan to our evening program. Let's get started then with our first um, segment here. We're gonna focus on PSMA PET imaging. Um, let's start by talking about opportunities and challenges which with the introduction of PSMA PET specifically and how that's offered the care of patients with advanced prostate cancer. Dr. Cooks, in the 2023 updated guidelines have modified the language in several of their statements regarding indications for PSMA PET. Let's start with the patients who experience biochemical recurrence after local failure. The guidelines now offer PSMA PET as the preferred staging modality. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, it was really first tested in this space where patients who had failed local therapy with a rising PSA were investigated, and it was superior to conventional imaging, as almost all of us are aware now. Um, when we're monitoring patients with a rising PSA uh, following local therapy, it's important that we periodically check that PSA in those patients with a more rapidly increasing or a faster doubling time, it's recommended to image those men to try and ensure that they don't develop metastatic disease, or if they do, that we catch it early. So it is recommended to do a PSMA scan as a preferred imaging modality in that scenario. And in those men who've undergone conventional imaging, say a bone scan and a CT scan, where there is no evidence of disease, that is also an opportunity to do a PSMA PET at that moment. So, so um, Todd, as a follow-up, how going forward do you envision clinicians altering care in these patients that, that, that Mike described based on PSMA fed findings? For example, um, lots of discussion about metastasis-directed therapies. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I mean, it, it, it's such a huge change for us that I think when you reflect on how slow we are to implement research, you know, so much of the time. And here's a new technology that has just been rapidly implemented. And we're seeing, you know, to, to a large extent, this huge stage migration. And, you know, all of these patients who had, you know, biochemical recurrence and we, we couldn't find their cancer, all of a sudden now we can see their cancer. And the challenge is that all of our data for metastatic prostate cancer comes from conventional imaging. And the temptation is to move that data, you know, back over. Say, well, we we know what to do for metastatic prostate cancer, but we don't know what to do for this new new disease stage. It's you know this call it what you, you know molecular metastatic, pet only metastatic disease, and so I, I think we have to acknowledge that it, it's a challenge for us that we don't necessarily always know what to do, but there are data to support metastasis directed therapy, and. That, that data comes from a few different trials. I think, um, you know, we, we look at STOMP, we look at Oral, we look at Sabre Comet. And, and really of those, the only one that we're 
the treatment was really directed based on pet results was stomp. And so, you know, we have three trials and, and so stomp and Oreo were in prostate cancer, you know, oligometastatic prostate cancer, where patients received SBRT to their metastatic disease sites. Saber Comet grouped multiple different cancers, but included a large proportion of patients with prostate cancer. And what we see is that there's a delay in time to progression. It delays ADT. Is there an impact on survival? Well, we don't we don't see that yet. Um, and so that that's a huge question. And so we, we have a lot to learn. We certainly do. I, I like the molecular metastatic term, and perhaps that's going to replace what was historically biochemical recurrence as we get more and more sensitive to detect things earlier and earlier. Um, let's talk about imaging in a different disease state. Dr. Morgans, what about for patients with hormone-sensitive uh, cancer whose disease has been identified on, on, on conventional imaging? Um, do we need PSMA PET here too at this time? So I think we're going to evolve to probably be using it more often in this space, but right now there's a pretty limited use. Um, one, if we if we go past hormone sensitive and go into MCRPC, you know, we use PSMA PET to really identify um, patients who might be candidates for Lutetian PSMA 617. It's it is the biomarker that we need to make sure that we get. But in the MHSPC setting, uh, the only time I really get it is if I have conventional imaging with very minimal evidence of metastatic disease, maybe one lesion in a vertebral body or one pelvic um, concerning area for possible metastasis. And then I use it really to think about treating oligometastatic disease. And, and I think we should acknowledge that this is outside of the guidelines, really. And um, these patients in the past may have had um, you know, questionable lesions, but if we can SBRT everything that we can see on PSMA PET and conventional imaging, then I think it's a reasonable strategy to try for patients who want to be aggressive. Of course, continuing to treat the prostate with radiation and intensified systemic therapy like we would want to do for this, what would be a low volume metastatic hormone sensitive setting. Thank you. So, so lots of different disease states being impacted by this. Um, Steve, one of, the, one of the things that, you know, we we kind of jumped right into the biochemical failure, but of course, now PSMA PETs FDA approved for those newly diagnosed patients that are at high risk for developing metastatic disease. So unfavorable intermediate and certainly high risk patients too. So just wanted to include that in kind of cover the whole space. 100%. Thank you, Mike, for, for highlighting that. Very important in terms of guidelines and, 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 and um, for our audience, you know, the staging is another clear indication to obtain PSMA PET. Um, let's move to the next area that the guidelines um, updated and, and, and focused on, which was the management for patients with non-metastatic or M0CRPC. Um, the last several years have seen a remarkable expansion in the number of different therapeutic options um, that we have to offer these patients. So I'm going to illustrate a case in launch some discussion from, from there. Um, this is a 57-year-old man who is status post-radical prostatectomy in 2015 for a Gleason 9 um, seminal vesicle invasion, R1, N0 prostate cancer. He experienced biochemical recurrence and was treated with early salvage radiation therapy in 2016. The next year, his PSA began to rise again. Um, you can see the trajectory of it here at 0.6 then 1.3, 2.9, um, and over the course of the next year, up to 4.9. His imaging evaluation 
uh, was negative and he was initiated on ADT with a PSA that returned to undetectable. Um, however, despite castrate levels of testosterone, his PSA again began to rise about 18 months later, 0.6, 1.6, and then 3.9 with a PSA doubling time here now bringing us to February of 2020 of three months. Repeat imaging now was negative. So Dr. Cookson, can you outline for us how this entity of M0 CRPC is defined? Discuss what are the really meaningful endpoints that have been documented as efficacy in the trials to date, um, testing the new agents that we have? Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so there is a lot of variability in the patients who have this rising PSA despite negative, and this was conventional imaging in the day when these trials were conducted. Um, so we know that when your testosterone level is castrate and your PSA is rising, that you are certainly at risk for the development of metastatic disease. And in other trials, really looking at bone targeting and things such as that, they found that those patients who had a PSA doubling time that was more rapid, certainly those less than 12 months, maybe less than 10 months, they were at risk for the development of what patients fear, um, and that is the development of a metastatic site. And so trials were developed to try and look at how we could prevent the development of metastases. So there were three trials using three separate agents compared to essentially ADT alone. So it's ADT plus one of these oral agents, either apalutamide, daralutamide, or enzalutamide. And what they did was they enriched the, to be in the study, you had to have a doubling time that was under 10 months. So to be clear, and the guidelines state this, in a patient with a slower rise in their PSA, um, they may be safely observed. However, in those patients with a more rapid doubling time, and there's concern about the development, then what could be done? And so those trials used a novel endpoint called metastasis-free survival because they didn't know what would impact overall survival. And that was defined as the development of metastatic disease or death from any cause. And while there were three separate trials, they all ultimately showed a positive result with a highly statistically significant reduction in the development of metastases or metastasis-free survival using the active agents, apalutamide, daralutamide, or enzalutamide in that high-risk subset. So that's important to note. Now, those trials got approved based on metastasis-free survival. Subsequently, they've done follow-up on those all three trials, and all three trials, ultimately, that metastasis-free survival translated into overall survival. So while the approval is based on MFS or metastasis-free, uh, it's encouraging to be able to inform patients that if they're in this situation, that adding an agent earlier rather than waiting for the development of a metastasis is going to benefit them not only in reduction of symptoms, but also in terms of their overall survival. And then included in the guidelines is the fact that really in this space, currently chemotherapy and immunotherapy for non-metastatic CRPC is really should be only conducted in the context of a trial. It's not an approved agent or a, a, an active agent clinically, as far as we know. Thanks for that. So if I could if I could push one one step further then, Mike. So um, when we think about treatment selection, 
Um, you mentioned is it should it be the PSA doubling time that you know who to treat? Um, and then okay, if you make the call that you're going to do treatment, you just outline there's three agents. How do we do treatment selection among these? Yeah, that's so. First of all, you know the FDA approval did not mandate a specific doubling time. So let's be clear on that. But when we reviewed the clinical trials and the inclusion criteria, we felt on the guidelines panel that that was the best advice to give. So obviously you can individualize based on overall PSA, patient anxiety, different characteristics as to whether or not you're going to start them on a treatment. But that that's one thing. Um, the, the other really you know important point on this is that in patients, which which agent, there's no head-to-head -head comparator trials, right? So it's really not appropriate, although we try to um, kind of compare side effect profiles or certain things from trial A, B, and C, but the data is collected differently. Uh, questions are asked in a different format. Um, so it's it's probably not very scientific for us to say, one agent is superior to another, or we know definitely. Now, there are certain nuances about some of the side effects. So, for example, enzalutamide, if you had a history of seizures, wouldn't be um, a choice that you'd want to do. Uh, I think when you're monitoring patients, like for apalutamide, thyroid function tests become part of, of the management. So, there, there are some nuances to who might absolutely be persuaded from one agent to another. But in general, we don't have a superiority of one over the other. Very helpful. And I think understanding those nuances are increasingly important as these options. And we'll talk a little bit later about things like financial toxicity and how that plays a role as well. But certainly side effect profile and patient tolerability will be among the considerations there. I appreciate that sort of very nice overview of M0CRPC. Let's move to the next sort of disease state that the guidelines cover and focus on, which is the treatment of patients with hormone-sensitive metastatic disease. And again, I'll provide an illustrative case to, to launch our discussion here. Uh, this is a 58-year-old healthy man who presented for a first PSA check, and it returned at 68. Recheck was 56. Had a prostate MRI with a 22cc prostate gland. Had some extensive irregular signal and suspicious osseous metastasis identified on the MR. Prostate biopsy was consistent with Gleason 8 disease in all cores. Conventional imaging, which was what it was obtained at the time, demonstrated numerous, greater than four, and we'll perhaps talk about why that number is relevant, metastasis in the pelvis, ribs, and scapula. CT scan showed retroperitoneal lymph nodes as well. So, um, Alicia, I'm sorry. Yeah, Alicia, let's talk a little bit about how you think through the initial management of these patients with metastatic hormone sensitive um, disease. What are the stratification tools that you find most useful? Um, there are terms that get thrown around high risk, low risk, high volume, low volume. Um, can you help kind of provide some 50,000 foot view about how we should think these through? Absolutely. So, Let's um, really confirm here that this is all based on conventional old-fashioned imaging. So CTs, MRIs, bone scans are what define this. And that this is why we have currently a relatively limited utility of PSMA PET in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting when the cancer is clearly metastatic on these old-fashioned images. So um, 
High and low volume are really important when we're thinking about using things like triplet therapy. Um, so ADT, docetaxel, and an AR signaling inhibitor or radiation of the prostate. And I think we'll hear a little bit more about that in a minute. And risk has been really important in one study, the latitude study, but doesn't necessarily influence our treatment decision-making at this point in time. Um, so high volume disease was initially defined in the charted study. So it's been about a decade since we've had this definition. And this is defined as the presence of visceral metastases and or at least four lesions that are metastatic to bone with at least one outside of the vertebral um, column and or pelvis, that axial skeleton. So anything that's not high volume is low volume. And high risk disease, again, defined in latitude and not necessarily what we use to make treatment decisions at this point in time, does define a poor prognostic group. That's the purpose. And this was the population enrolled in latitude, which was metastatic hormone sensitive disease treated with abiraterone uh, in ADT versus ADT. This is when patients have two of the three of the following, Gleason score greater than or equal to eight, three or more metastatic bone lesions, doesn't matter where, and uh, or visceral disease. So they just need two of the three of those and that's high risk disease. Anything that doesn't meet that is low risk disease. Thank you. So it's, I can understand the general confusion with three Mets on bone in risk and then four or more in volume. So I very much appreciate your kind of clarifying that. Um, now, in terms of when we think about treatment, there are several uh, systemic therapy approved options in this setting. Um, and, and I think from a agent class, they can be broadly categorized as chemotherapy and androgen pathway directed therapy treatments. How do you advise between these treatments and, and their various mechanisms? And, and I guess, you know, as a corollary to that, and you alluded to this, perhaps the most um, intense discussion has been treatment intensification or triplet therapy, um, which is ADT, docetaxel, and either abiraterone, prednisone, or darolutamide. Um, who are the optimal patients for, for that regimen? So that's a big question with, you know, a couple layers I recognize, but just, um, you know, would be very interested in your thoughts there. Sure. So anybody is going to be eligible for ADT and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. So that is really our standard backbone. ADT alone, not really the choice here and not really recommended in the guidelines unless there's a major medical contraindication. So who does triplet therapy? This seemed to be most beneficial for patients with high volume disease. So again, if you're going to focus on one of these definitions, it's high volume, low volume from the charted study that's going to be the most helpful. And just like in charted, patients with the most burden of disease seemed to have the most benefit from chemotherapy and this intensified approach. And this is really the, the population that was enriched in the uh, ARASENS trial that looked at ADT, docetaxel, and darolutamide, and also was, was present in a, a large proportion for PEACE-1, which was ADT, docetaxel, and abiraterone. Um, and they have a survival benefit in both PEACE-1 and in ARASENS. I would say that the low volume patients in PEACE-1 which included all de novo metastatic patients, so it's a poor prognostic group to begin with, that just that data is not yet mature. So there may be a benefit in low volume, but we don't have that clear data right now. Um, and really, again, this de novo metastatic, high volume metastatic seems to be the most solid data for using triplet therapy. That being said, for patients who are borderline in any of those factors, who are young and healthy, who want to do everything kitchen sink approach, there's no restriction from applying uh, that triplet therapy, but but the ones that are more of the, the slam dunk population, Genova metastatic high volume 
So if I could ask two maybe unfair questions, because I'm not sure they have an answer. Um, is there a role for just ADT and chemotherapy now? That is a fair question. And it's actually been removed from the NCCN guidelines. I think that if there's a financial reason that you cannot get an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor, and so you, your other option, if you don't do combination ADT chemo is ADT alone, I still think that there's a role. And I have given that to patients with abiraterone coming off um, patent and being generic. I've been able to get um, that as an option for my patients more easily than I have in the past. But I think we can't put patients at a disadvantage in terms of disease control. And I think ADT alone is a disadvantage. If the main barrier is financial and they're willing to do chemotherapy, we do have evidence in the high volume patient population in the charted study that ADT docetaxel is at least better than ADT alone. So if they can tolerate it, I still think that that, that, that might be an option in that situation where there's a financial limitation. And, and, and can I ask a question? It's the for yeah, Alicia. Um, can I ask what, what percentage of your patients get triplet therapy in this study? I mean, is this the 10% population? Is this 30%? What are we so, talking? Remember, I'm at a, a really high volume specialized center where people come because they want the kitchen sink. Um, so for me, for de novo metastatic, it's probably 30%, maybe 40%. Um, but it's a unique population. I bet in the in the real world, it's yeah. maybe 20% of anybody's practice, maybe, maybe somewhere between 10 and 20%. But um, I'm 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 biased. And I also think that we can get a majority of patients who are willing to try chemotherapy, we can get them through it. And I think it's less dramatic than things like treatment for breast cancer, lymphoma, or leukemia, because this is one, one chemo. So usually we can get guys through it. And if we can't, we just stop the chemo and we just keep going with the ADT and AR signaling inhibitor. Yeah. So the, the, the second question is actually is just something that came through from Dr. Lane on the, in the chat and really timely. Um, trials, you mentioned triplet therapy based on conventional imaging. So... What do we do about our definitions that you nicely outlined for us in the PSMA era that we just chatted about, where we have the opportunity that we might be detecting more? Um, does four or more lesions on PSMA equal 2023 high volume and triplet therapy? So not, not necessarily. And I think what I do normally when I have a PSMA pet is uh, as my real kind of only imaging, I try to see if there's a CT correlate for those bone lesions. So in many cases, we'll see one. And so then I can count it as a real met. But I, you cannot extrapolate PSMA PET um, and just say, oh, there's a bunch of lymph nodes involved and a few bone spots. If they're not there on the CT scan, then it's really hard to say that that's the high volume patient population. That does not mean, again, that that patient cannot get triplet therapy. If the patient is a motivated young person who's chemo fit, you can give triplet therapy to any patient who wants that. I, I just think that it's less clear that that patient is a high volume patient if all we have is uh, imaging that, that is PSMA positive without a CT correlate. But it's got to be totally different when you reverse engineer the PSMA PET to a CT when you know it's there. And, then, and now you're looking like, ah, oh, I probably see it. Well, and that's when it's important to know your radiologist and, and you know, have that conversation. And, and I think that you know, you can look too, and you can see something there. I, I think they try to be honest and they say, at least in my reports, it says no CT correlate, no, like in bone, particularly no, no evidence of CT change in bone or yes, there, there is evidence. Um, if you don't have access to the radiologist, you know, of course 
you can look at the lesions too and see if you see anything, but you, you really cannot use a PSMA PET to define high volume disease. And from my perspective, unless there is, there are changes in the bone or changes wherever you think they are, that would be measurable on the CT. Yeah. It's going to need some additional testing and, and, and perhaps trial evidence then to, to flip that, to convince. I, I think we need the evidence to show either that triplet therapy is just going to be beneficial to all. And piece one may show that they may show a survival advantage in low volume patients, in which case that'll help us at least know from a de novo metastatic population that it's going to be universally beneficial or, and I should say, and, or we're also going to have to get the data with PET and try to understand what the crosswalk is there. Going to keep Mike and the guidelines group working for some time to come then. Um, so um, staying in the in the hormone sensitive metastatic space here, Todd, um, you know, and, and Alicia alluded to this earlier uh, that there are going to be select patients that might be considered for local therapy, and 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 specifically, we'll talk here for a minute about prostate radiation. Um, how do we think about patient selection in that in that situation? Who should we be treating locally? Who has documented metastatic disease? Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Um, you know, when we talk about local therapy in this study, we're, we're really talking about radiation. Um, and and that, that's at, at this point when we're out, outside of a clinical trial. And, um, you know, the concept, the concept is right, that patients have most of their tumor burden in the prostate, especially in the lower volume setting. They have most of their disease burden in the, in the prostate. The primary tumor can see at other sites. Of course, other sites can also see at other sites. But that, that's the idea is that if most of the tumor burden is in the prostate and if we can directly treat most of the tumor burden, well, boy, it should help. And, and there, are, uh, there are a couple of major trials that have looked at this question. One is the HORAD trial, uh, which was a Dutch trial, smaller trial, about um, 400-ish patients, ADT versus local RT plus ADT. A negative trial in terms of an impact in overall survival but a subgroup analysis in patients with fewer than five metastases showed a possible benefit um, to radiation. It was kind of marginal benefit or right, you know, kind of close, but no cigar for overall survival, positive for progressive free survival. But the, the real big one in this space was the stampede trial, RMH of stampede, again, ADT alone versus RT plus ADT. And again, negative overall but there was a pre-planned subgroup analysis using the chartered criteria that we talked about in the low volume patients who underwent radiation as opposed radiation plus ADT as opposed to as opposed to just ADT there was a, there was a benefit um, there was a, a survival benefit and and so so this is where the, you know this concept really emerged and it has moved into actual clinical practice um, it's clear that radiation to the primary does not have a role in patients with a high metastatic disease burden. So when, when we think patient selection, we're really honing in on those patients with lower disease burden. I think a key question is, as we intensify systemic therapy in this space, does radiation really still have an impact? And that remains to be seen as, you know, it makes sense as systemic therapies become more effective, the odds that a local therapy is going to make a incremental difference probably decreases. Um, the, the key pending trial that I know of is piece one that Alicia already mentioned, where, where we're looking 
to see the data. This, you know, in this trial, patients got the standard of care, which may have included docetaxel plus or minus abiraterone, and then also kind of in a two by two design plus or minus radiation. And what we really need to see is what was the impact of radiation that's been presented at GUASCO, but the the um, paper has, has not been published that I that I've seen. Um, and and so th so this is the, this is the question: in, in patients who are really getting intensified treatment, will radiation make a difference? And it, and it may. Um, so you know, I would say in our in our practice, we do offer and provide radiation to the primary for these types of select patients. Um, we also have SWOG 1802 open, which is a randomized control trial um, looking at surgery in this setting, surgery or radiation as the local therapy arm, um, as the as the intervention arm. And so hopefully that will fully accrue over the next year or two and eventually we'll read out. Todd, if I could go one step further, though, for the, you know, you mentioned unknown value of perhaps local treatment in the setting of better systemic therapy or more intense systemic therapy. Right now, while we don't know that question, what do you do about the low volume sites of METs if you choose to radiate the prostate? Do you address them with local therapy too? Do you rely on the systemic therapy for the four or less bone lat? You know, how do you, how do you think yeah. about the sites? We, we, we tend to treat those too. And, and this is, I mean, it, it, it's realistically extrapolation upon extrapolation. Um, and, um, you know, so we talked about metastasis-directed therapy based on STOMP and ORIL, okay? There's um, there's Empire One trial, which randomized patients to receive salvage radiation mapped based on PET imaging metastatic disease, positive. And so the more we see of treating additional sites, low volume, but additional sites, the radiation, the more we see that there may be a benefit, but, but again, extrapolation ex upon extrapolation. And it becomes, yeah, excuse me, but as I said, it becomes, you know, a judgment call, what is oligometastatic? And, you know, when you exceed five sites or, you know, some people pick three, there's a diminishing return at some point. And, you know, we, we can only treat what we can see in that setting. So, there are many times when we would go for a surgery, say for just low volume PSMA PET nodes, only one or two, we'd find multiple nodes. So there's a limit to what we can see. And I think, you know, there's a limit to how vigorous we should apply kind of a hall steady. And if I can just, you know, treat one more met with some radiation, I'll get there. So I think what Todd says is exactly right. And for lower volume metastatic disease, uh, we often treat the primary and it's very tempting to treat the one or two lymph nodes that are adjacent or one bone site or two, but there may be a limit to what we should recommend based on how many sites there are. It's such a, it's such an important point. And, and we don't like in the, when do you stop, stop question? Because the, of course metastases recur and, and to what limit do we take it is, you know, probably an everyday question in, in many, many folks practices. I do think there's a Stampede 2 trial that we'll be launching at some point soon. And so this question will be at least, we're attempting to answer it, but this is the big one in practice, at least when I see these localized-ish patients or oligometastatic patients, can we really change the trajectory of the disease? That's the question. Great. Thank you, each, each one of you, for that input. Let's move to the next broad topic that was covered both by the guideline amendment and then, as you saw from one of our um 
key questions here, which is the role of genetic testing in patients with high risk and advanced prostate cancer. There's been continued data that's emerged regarding indications for and importance of genetic testing in these patients. Um, so, um, that, Morgan, um, let's start um, here when we think broadly about the indications um, for testing. Can you speak about um, what are the criteria that clinicians should be following to determine if germline um, testing should be undertaken in a newly diagnosed patient with prostate cancer? Thanks, Steve. Th I mean, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. This is something that is really, really important. It's something that we as urologists really underutilize. And so just, you know, taking a moment to look, look at what I use are the NCCN guidelines. Of course, this in, in various AUA prostate cancer guidelines, all of these themes really emerge in different statements. They are, they kind of really come together in the NCCN guidelines with clear, kind of clear criteria that get updated every year. Um, and so, you know, if we look, there are really three different buckets that we think of for um, who should undergo germline testing among patients with prostate cancer. So first of all, we're, ta we're not talking about patients who don't have prostate cancer. We're talking specifically about, or don't have any cancer, we're talking specifically about patients who have prostate cancer. And so we can look at tumor characteristics. And so there we're, we're talking patients with metastatic disease, and that's what we're here today to discuss. So the point is, any patient with metastatic disease, not just castrate resistant, but any patient with metastatic disease is recommended to undergo germline testing. So that's, that's a real important take-home point tonight. In addition, among patients with localized prostate cancer, other features like high or very high-risk disease and possibly introductal and cribriform are kind of a, maybe, you know, we should think about germline testing among those patients. The, rate of the prevalence of key mutations, what are we talking about? You know, to kind of skip past what mutations, we're really talking for the most part about homologous repair, homologous recombination, repair mutations like mutations in BRCA1 or 2, or we're talking about mutations in mismatch repair genes um, that cause Lynch syndrome. And so, um, you know, we need to really, we need to think about these patients who meet these tumor characteristics. Um, Next criteria would be by family history and ancestry. And this, there's a lot here, and I'm not going to read through all of this, but the big themes are, look, if a patient has a close blood relative, and by close blood relative in the NCCN, it's a first, second, or third degree relative. So we're really talking about anybody in the family. Somebody who had breast cancer under the age of 50, somebody who had male breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, metastatic or high or very high risk prostate cancer, so, so we're talking about somebody who didn't meet, right? These are patients who didn't meet the tumor characteristics on their own. So these are patients with, say, low-risk prostate cancer, intermediate-risk prostate cancer. We move to the family history and ancestry criteria. So a little bit less relevant for tonight because, again, any patient with metastatic prostate cancer, regardless of family history, is recommended to undergo germline testing. But among localized patients with intermediate or say low risk disease, we can use these family history and ancestry criteria. There's also the criteria of two close blood relatives or more with breast or prostate cancer at any age or patients with Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry because of the higher rate of these mutations. And then the last would be patients who's, who have undergone somatic tumor testing and a mutation was 
found that might correlate with a germline mutation. For example, if we see a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation on tumor sequencing, then that triggers us to think, well, we got to look and see if that patient actually has a germline inherited you know, mutation that is being passed along from generation to generation. That was an incredibly nice summary. So I think one of the questions, though, that and, and that very clear, love the take-home point emphasized. Um, hopefully, it'll help our, our audience <laughs> with their post-test questions. Um, one of the concerns I, I have heard raised about ordering genetic testing is the myriad of potential findings that can come from that for the patients, for their family members, and the challenge of how do you integrate that discussion into a busy urology clinic. So um, so who should order this? Who, you know, um, should all patients be directed to a genetic counselor for this evaluation before the testing is undertaken? Or what are your thoughts? Thanks. So, you know, in terms of the, the different findings, there are, there are three types of findings that we get. And we need to know that and we need to communicate that with patients ahead of time. Like any time we order a test, we need to explain the test and the possible result of the test. In this case, we may get a finding of a pathogenic or likely pathogenic mutation. You know, again, we're thinking BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM. These are some key genes um, in prostate cancer that are related to DNA repair. And so about 10, 12, maybe 15%, depending on the population we're, we're looking at, of patients with advanced prostate cancer will have a germline mutation that is pathogenic or likely pathogenic. So that's a positive finding. And the, I'm not going to go through the nomenclature there, but it, it comes back there. You know, it tells you the gene, it tells you where in the DNA and what the impact of the protein level in kind of all, all this code, code word. But really what's notable is pathogenic mutation or likely pathogenic mutation and then the gene, BRCA2 in this case. The result can come back as benign or likely benign. That's negative. And so that's about 75, 80% of times that we order germline testing, it's just going to come back negative. Very, very reassuring. And when we talk to patients about, you know, why should you consider getting a test? Well, that's really one of the reasons I think you find that most people actually just assume that they've got an inherited mutation that's caused their prostate cancer. And by ordering testing, about 80, roughly percent of patients will find out they do not carry this gene, which alleviates really, really I think a lot of anxiety related to their, their kids or siblings or other family members. And then the third classification is a variant of uncertain significance. That's this gray area. And so we need to warn patients about that ahead of time. That's where an abnormality is, is identified. You know, we have lots of different changes in our genome. It's probably fine, right? We have lots of normal changes in our genome. It's probably fine. It's usually eventually reclassified with additional data, lots of patients figuring out whether people were more likely to get cancer or not usually reclassified as negative, but sometimes every once in a while it's positive. And so people do get notified. We get notified if we order, order the test. If the patient is registered with whatever platform we've used to order the test, they will also get, um, get notified. Um, can I see the, the next slide? Because you asked about you know, who should order this. Um, it, it's the, you know, it can be us as urologic oncologists or urologists. It can be medical oncologists. It can be radiation oncologists. It can be genetic counselors. The problem is if, with just moving everything over to genetic counselors is that the indications for testing are vast and there are not that many genetic counselors, even in you know, a place like 
Boston with 5 billion folks in medicine, there are not enough genetic counselors. And certainly in more rural communities here, there are definitely not enough genetic counselors. And so regardless, it's upon us seeing the patient to identify who need testing, to know the criteria, to explain the purpose of the test and the genes tested. We can refer to the genetic counselors for testing, but we can also go over the possible testing outcomes. We can also discuss options, how we do it, sputum or saliva or blood. We discuss genetic discrimination risks. We don't have time to go into, into that, but there are some protections around the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. We got to know those, explain those. We can order the test. Then we have to discuss the results with patients. Anytime we order tests, we have to discuss the results, obviously. Um, but it's really, really important in this space. And then we can relate that to additional prostate cancer recommendations. We can relate that to screening recommendations for other malignancies. That's really, this is really where our colleagues who are genetic counselors help us out tremendously. Patients with pathogenic mutations have to be referred for genetic counseling. They will learn about recommendations for screening for other malignancies, and they will learn about cascade testing of family members. And I did see, maybe somebody answered it, but Rick Davis gave a shout out to the Promise Registry where people have an opportunity to participate and get tested and contribute data. Um, and so th thanks for that shout out. Yeah, no, I appreciate you highlighting that. That was really a, a great thing. Um, and thanks, Alicia, for putting that in the chat there. Um, we're going to move to our, and, and Todd, thank you for that really, really nice summary of a very, very important topic. Um, let's move now to talking about the novel therapies. And one of the areas I think where there's been the biggest excitement, which is developing therapies for patients with metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. So this case can be a starting point, um, you know, for us and for our discussion. Um, 71-year-old man status post-radiation and two years of hormone therapy for GLISA-9 clinical T3 prostate cancer, had a PSA rise subsequently, noted to have two to three bony lesions, treated with um, LHRH um, agonist and abiraterone, PSA natured on that therapy at 0 0.8, but then began to rise rapidly to now 56 in a doubling time of three months again, in the setting of castrate level of testosterone, now with new bone pain, multiple osteoblastic lesions in the spine and a new liver lesion. Um, so MCRPC. Um, Alicia, one of the areas that remains the topic of, of a lot of discussion in MCRPC is treatment sequencing and how we, what are the factors that go into making a decision about What's the next therapy that a patient should receive? Um, can you talk through with us some of the factors that should be considered in treating patients and in particular in, in how we make these decisions about sequencing treatments? Yeah, I think, you know, such a common question. How do we sequence? What's the best sequence? And actually, I think it's really impossible to say for a population, what's the best sequence? So what we try to do is choose the right treatment for the patient at the time when the disease is progressing. So we have to do this at every step along the way as we progress through metastatic CRPC and the lines there. So the most important thing that I think about is always prior treatments. And if you have an opportunity to look at the NCCN guidelines, they have four main boxes that really emphasize this prior treatment informs next treatment kind of concept. And each box is a different option for what they may have received in the metastatic hormone sensitive uh, setting from ADT alone to combinations of different types, all the way to triplet therapy. Um, and, and the reason that that's so important is that 
we really, I think, emphasize the need for novel mechanisms of action, not sequencing AR signaling inhibitors one after the other, because we know that the resistance patterns that develop to one of these is in most cases going to give you a similar uh, resistance, if not immediately in the short order, to the other options in terms of AR signaling inhibitors. But when we saw this particular patient, we also recognize that some of the other things that drive us in our next treatments are whether the patient has visceral metastases. That liver lesion in this patient suggests that this is a very aggressive, rapidly progressive disease. And so we might choose something differently in this setting than we would for a patient who has asymptomatic, slowly progressing disease. We also know that it's different if the patient has a liver lesion or visceral metastases of other types versus bone-only metastatic disease, which might give us options that are things like radium and an asymptomatic, slowly progressing um, uh, patient might have access to Cipulus LT, where these rapidly progressing patients with more visceral disease might need chemotherapy. So um, these are the kinds of things that we have to consider. Certainly, we have to understand if the patient is going to be a candidate for chemotherapy, which does require a certain performance status up and moving around at least half of the day. That's sort of a gestalt requirement for these patients. If they are less active than that or really uh, impaired or frail, they actually could be harmed more than helped from chemotherapy. Importantly, we need to understand the histology of the disease. Is this small cell neuroendocrine differentiation? In which case, we're really going to think about chemotherapy, but it's got to be a platinum-based and usually combination chemotherapy rather than our traditional uh, taxane-type chemotherapy. We also need to get the genetic testing that Todd talked about. Are there HRR mutations or DNA repair defect mutations? Does the patient have MSI high disease or high TMB? Are there Lynch syndrome mutations that might make that patient eligible for pembrolizumab? So PMS2, MLH1, MSH2, MSH6. So these mutations, then TMB and all of that's important. And then the BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, all the PARP targetable alterations are really important as well. And then finally, as we, we come to the real world practice, we have to know whether these options are going to be available in our practice location. Do we need a PSMA PET to identify patients eligible for lutetium PSMA 617? Do we have access to that? Do we have access to lutetium? Do we have access to radium? Um, that's really critical. And then always, if, if we have um, the ability, thinking about clinical trial options that may help our science advance and also provide best care for our patients is really, really important. You did it. I challenged that you couldn't do MCRPC in seven minutes, and you did it. Um, that was unbelievable and amazing. Um, if I could take the privilege, just just getting a, one more kind of push question on this. So, a couple of things that you outlined here, you know, um, targetable mutations, MSI high, small cell neuroendocrine. These are, you could argue, in some way, tissue based decision making factors. Um, and you know, Todd very nicely outlined indications for germline testing. Um, if I might ask, you know, when do you, when do you pull the trigger on getting somatic testing? And when, when should we be thinking about biopsying a lesion to, to look for some of this? Um, if let's say we followed our guidelines as outlined by Todd initially when they were diagnosed and they were negative germline um, or not, um, do we, do we get tissue from a met when? Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Um, so you know, somatic testing, what, what is it? First of all, first of all, right. It's, this is, we're talking about from the most part, tissue-based sequencing as, you know, asking what mutations might be present in the tissue different than inherited mutations. Usually it's tissue-based testing. There are circulating tumor DNA um, uh, tests. So liquid tests, blood tests that can potentially allow us to get this same information. And really the question we're asking here is, 
is is there a mutation in BRCA or BRCA1 or 2, for example, or is there a mutation in a mismatch repair gene that's specific to the tumor, not inherited, but specific to the tumor? In MCRPC, this is really, really important because it's going to inform additional therapy like PARP inhibition or like immunotherapy checkpoint inhibition. There's also, you know, there's also a recommendation now to really consider it in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Why? Well, is it going to inform therapy? Maybe not yet, but it certainly can inform clinical trials. And it also, and there are definitely clinical trials available in that space, but and it also, um, you know, it, it gives gives you that information earlier, early earlier, and in practice, if information changes, studies come out. Um, or at least you kind of know what you're looking at at a later disease stage when you do meet, meet um, clear guidelines for treatment. Very helpful because it is a common question. How will it change my treatment now? And and understanding what, what Todd just sort of outlined is, is right on. Um, maybe the newest development in um, the management of advanced prostate cancer has been the FDA's approval of lutetium PSMA 617 for the treatment of patients with MCRPC. And indeed, lutetium therapy has now been included in the 2023 AUA Advanced Prostate Cancer Guideline update. So Mike, can you discuss for us a little bit about where you think lutetium fits in the evolving treatment sequencing and who's a candidate and when would you use it? Sure, um, I think I may have a slide on this too, but um, what we're really you know talking about, and I know we're gonna get into a little bit more about precision-based medicine um, and how we can really give sort of the treatment that is appropriate for the patient based on molecular diagnostics or imaging, et cetera. So basically, this combines the, the diagnostic PSMA with a therapy that's linked to it. And so to uh, really bring those two things together, I mean, in some ways, the holy grail, right? If you could deliver a payload of treatment to the source of the cancer, that is truly game-changing. And so we're we're kind of in our infancy with the development of this, but it is exciting. And there's a lot going to be coming in that space of personalized medicine. If you could bring up the next slide, the first um, trial, you know, that really did this for us was the vision trial, looking at lutetium, um, which is linked to PSMA. Um, it's a beta particle. And this was uh, done in a phase three trial where they looked at patients that would undergo a PSMA PET with metastatic CRPC. These patients were really kind of, if you will, on third line therapy. They had failed an AR targeted therapy. They'd failed chemotherapy. And now what next for them? And so they'd get a PET scan. If they had a PET scan that was positive, then they'd either receive standard of care or lutetium plus standard of care. And in this trial, there was benefit um, in terms of uh, not just radiographic or progression, but there was overall survival advantage when the patients were treated with this precision uh, guided therapy, if you will. Um, so that's exciting. And that led to the FDA approval of this agent um, in this setting. So, so um, thanks, Mike. Um, you know, Alicia, what about toxicities? What are what are important side effects of lutetium that we need to be aware of? And um, you know, laboratory testing, monitoring. How, how do we do that? Yeah. So, I think the most important 
testing for lutetium is really monitoring the CBC. And at least as we deliver it, we do a CBC certainly before every dose. And for the first few cycles, we do a mid-cycle CBC as well. We have had some patients develop marrow suppression and need to have either delays in their next cycle or potentially transfusions um, to help support them through. And I think as we looked at the early studies, we didn't necessarily feel the full extent of this because I notice it more in patients who are receiving lutetium in earlier and earlier lines of therapy on our clinical trials, for example. And I, I would also say, although currently lutetium is approved after an AR signaling inhibitor and dosatex chemotherapy, we have at least a preliminary press release that suggests that the PSMA4 study was positive. So we expect that lutetium is going to be getting um, an FDA approval in the pre-chemotherapy space as well, and may even move into the metastatic hormone sensitive setting. So I think that marrow toxicity and, and, um, and blood count suppression is gonna be something to think about. We also, of course, have to remember that patients are uh, giving off these beta particles. They're radioactive essentially for the first three days after treatment. If they really need a lot of support from their family, they're going to have to figure out how to do that with minimal interaction because they don't want to have prolonged exchanges with anybody and certainly need to avoid pregnant women and children for a week and, and everyone else for about three days. So that's the other thing. And then they can have some salivary gland toxicity and dry mouth, but that's usually relatively minimal. Thank you for highlighting some of those other things that we don't hear a lot about. Mike? Yeah, one of the things that she alluded to, and, and we, of course, saw this in the very beginning, and I, I remember because I'm getting older, docetaxel came out in metastatic CRPC, and the benefit was maybe three months, and urologists were kind of ho-hum about it, and nobody thought much about it. Later on, it moved further into an earlier disease state. Now, with newly diagnosed metastatic, sometimes 12, 18 months of benefit. So all of these initial trials are usually done in patients with really advanced disease, have failed multiple therapies, and you get a signal, and then you start moving that signal back. And as she said, moving it back to pre-chemotherapy, maybe some less toxicity and, and, and so forth. So it's really important for urologists to be aware, not only of the agents as they exist in their current form, but staying abreast of the new trials that develop because these um, options are likely going to be offered earlier and earlier in the disease process. One of the things that this this treatment brings up though is as 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 you outlined, Mike, it's it's in patients from the trial who had a positive PSMA scan. So so then Alicia, the question is, you know, how frequently do you image patients with MCRPC using PSMA PETs, um, you know, is it a matter, you know, are you doing it at a certain routine interval to see who's come becomes eligible? You know, what might be triggers to obtain repeat imaging for these patients? This is a great question and there's not data here. So even, even in the vision trial, they didn't release information necessarily on subsequent PSMA PET scans, though they did them. Um, we are trying to get them sometimes if we are not sure that the patient's disease is being controlled because, um, you know, certainly you have a PSMA pet prior to initiating treatment and then 
if you want to understand is the, is the cancer growing through this treatment or not, you would want to do a subsequent one. And so typically would, we would wait a couple of cycles at least before trying to repeat that. And I think we still have some fear and reticence that we're going to ask for these scans and they're not going to be approved. And so it's not a guarantee that we'll be able to get that. I would say that after we get through all six cycles, if we can get there, um, we are sometimes doing a PSMA PET to understand kind of what's our new baseline, what are we dealing with, and we're trying to also link that in many cases with a CT with contrast because um, the PSMA PET scans are not routinely done with a CT that has contrast, and especially if we're thinking about liver involvement or other visceral involvement, if you don't have contrast, you may be missing some areas of disease if they're PSMA PET negative, so just keep that in mind, particularly for the liver. So we are trying to do them, but there's no standard um, way to assess this at this point in time. Um, and so if you cannot get them, then doing standard imaging would, would be something that you should still be doing if, if you can't get a PET. Can I highlight, Rick, Rick Davis asked another good question, which is asking about concordance between PSMA and FDG PET in this setting. And I, and I think, I mean, you know, really it's not about, I, I think not concordance, but almost discordance, right? Because if there's an FDG PET signal, that would be a contraindication, right, to lutetium, Alicia? And so I'm curious, do you, do you get FDG for these no. patients ever? No. That's why, that's why we often will, if there's ever any question, we'll get a CT with IV contrast. Because if you have a lesion that is large on a CT with IV contrast, and that lesion is negative on PSMA PET, we're not expecting that that's going to respond. And particularly in the liver, that can be an issue. I, I have not routinely gotten FDG PETs. I do think they do them at Memorial Sloan Kettering. They've been using those for a long time and they're able to get them approved. But I think both in terms of patient burden and insurance coverage, it's probably not necessary and, and is really kind of, these are barriers that may be difficult to overcome. If you can get a CT with IV contrast, I think we should be able to see the majority of things. Um, and, and then of course, overlay the PSMA PET or look at them together and see if there's anything that's really discordant. Great nuanced point, Todd. Thank you for bringing that out um, in terms of optimal imaging. I appreciate that. Um, let's go to the, to the role of PARP inhibitors, which we've kind of hinted at before um, in patients with M MCRPC. So, um, you know, Alicia, can you outline for the audience the mechanism of action um, of this class of agents? Just some confusion that I've heard kicked about about this. And then maybe what are the, who, who are the specific cohorts of patients for whom PARP inhibitors, which are a form of personalized therapy that we discussed, um, are indicated? And, and then back to that whole question about sequencing, you know, um, when, do you, when do you do it? Yeah, so um, PARP inhibitors are really most useful when we're um, trying to target patients who have DNA repair defect alterations. The most common of these is BRCA2. There's also BRCA1. ATM has been listed, but may not be as responsive. PALB2 seems to be quite responsive. There's also CHECK2, CDK12. There's a whole list. So if you're doing your next generation sequencing for your somatic and germline testing, it'll often come back and say, this mutation may be targetable with a PARP inhibitor. Um, what does a PARP inhibitor do? Well, normally PARP proteins are involved in the machinery that repairs breaks that happen in the DNA, and these happen all the time. No, nothing is perfect, including the replication of DNA. And certainly insults, environmental or other insults, can enhance or increase the breaks that might be happening. And cancer cells make breaks more frequently. So PARP inhibitors come in and try to stabilize and repair double-stranded breaks, as we can see on this slide. And when you inhibit that, 
mutate uh, these these breaks in the DNA will build up, making the cell no longer viable, and it undergoes um, you know it just self destructs or or kills itself essentially. So if you can inhibit this and it's happening more often in cancer cells, then cancer cells will build up all of these, um, these breaks and they will eventually die. And that's, that's the goal of a PARP inhibitor. Um, and they're most useful, again, when patients already have messed up PARP proteins. So you further inhibit them and then the whole thing just falls apart. Um, I think that you know, this is really important for targeted treatments for patients with those alterations. We want to make sure that the alterations we identify are pathogenic, like Dr. Morgan talked about, and not just variants of uncertain significance, because those are not going to be mutations that are driving the cancer cell's activity. And inhibiting something that's not driving the cancer cell is just going to be kind of doing a, a side job, but not actually stopping the cancer cell from um, causing destruction or replicating itself. Um, on the next slide, I think it's important to also recognize this is one example of multiple that there are three now approved combinations of PARP inhibitors and AR signaling inhibitors. Again, this is one example from one trial. This is Olaparib plus abiraterone in the PROPEL trial, but I should mention niraparib and abiraterone also approved now and enzalutamide and talazoparib also approved. These combinations of a PARP and an AR signaling inhibitor seem to, by targeting two separate pathways, really have maybe a synergistic effect in, in, in shutting down cancer cells. So if PARP is one way that the cells are trying to repair themselves and, and kind of hobble, hobble along, and we inhibit that, we can push patients' uh, cancer cells to be maybe more dependent on the androgen receptor signaling pathway. And if we then inhibit that androgen receptor signaling pathway, we are blocking two different methods that that cell is trying to use to continue to grow, divide, and spread, and we're doubly uh, inactivating it. Again, this is just one example from one of the three trials, but we now have three combinations approved in the first-line metastatic uh, castration-resistant setting. So we can select patients who have these HRR mutations for um, telozoparib and enzalutamide or patients with BRCA1, BRCA2 for um, niraparib and abiraterone or laparib and abiraterone to, um, to really target and maybe even intensify the effectiveness of PARPs. So the combination may allow this to be used earlier in the MCRPC sequence in these select patients? Well, not exactly because laparib is approved after... Um, well, I guess I guess it could be. I guess it could. Yes, sorry, I, I apologize for that. So, alaparib is approved after progression on an ADT and an AR signaling inhibitor. So, this would be putting the AR signaling inhibitor in combination with the the um, the PARP, and so essentially would move it up a little bit. But we can use PARPs in first line MCRPC if you already had an AR signaling inhibitor in a prior line. So, if you had abiraterone in, with a metastatic hormone sensitive disease in the first line of MCRPC, you could use a laparib as a single agent if you wanted to. Mike, did you have a comment? Well, you're just seeing another example of, you know, PARPs were originally introduced kind of in that late stage, and now they're moving up into a position of uh, first line therapy and metastatic CRPC. And, you know, there's no reason to believe that these therapies, when they get tested in even non-CRPC, newly diagnosed metastatic, they're likely to show some benefit there too. So again, all the more reason for um, all of us to be aware of the changing times and the way that these um, drugs that are effective in really late stages are now showing efficacy in much earlier uh, stage. 
Mike, if I could keep you then on the on the hot seat here, um, when we think kind of about treatment of patients with advanced and and in particular metastatic prostate cancer, um, a, a concept that gets bantered about a lot is the creation of multidisciplinary clinics. Um, you know, how do met urologists integrate with medical oncologists to care for these patients um, in terms of you know, when do you turn the patient over? When do you, when, when do you do, are you co-treating these patients? Um, you know, what are the different types of structures that we should be thinking about? That's a great question. And, you know, if I could pick my team, I'd have Morgan and Morgans on my team, but you, you need to have what basic structure would be a medical oncologist or radiation oncologist and a urologist, but you need a navigator, you need advanced practice providers, and as things evolve, um, there's all kinds of added benefit. We talked about, if available, genetic counselors, cardio-oncology, you name it. So the menu gets quite large if you really want to provide patients with the best outcomes. The goal isn't really to, to sort of get rid of them or who's, you know, it, it's usually a continuous flow. Now, there is a point, maybe in the palliative state, where probably there is a transition and a handoff. But I would say that for the most part, urologists, medical oncologists, and radiation oncologists have their moments to usually they've evolved, in, especially in the United States. They progress through treatments. Many of those you shepherded them through, whether it was surgery, radiation, you still, you're giving their ADT many times. So I don't think of it like, um, you know, when do you go to the next one? It really a truly multidisciplinary care model, you need different people at different times. But I would say that many times, at least in my experience, the urologist continues to play an important role and, and knows that others add value and, and use that to the patient's advantage. Thanks, Mike. Um, you know, another important, I think, concept when we think about this, and, and it was one of the things that you... Um, made mention of before Alicia, but I just wanted to kind of bring it out further was, was patient comorbidity status. Um, how, how do we factor that in and, and in, into our treatment selection criteria, especially in the, in the metastatic setting? So I think most importantly, we need to check for drug drug interactions when we're choosing these therapies and um, make sure that we understand if there might be a statin in, that's going to interact or a blood thinner or something like that, because patients need to have treatments for their other medical problems. Um, certainly when we're thinking about things like chemotherapy, we need to look at their comorbidities and the burden that they're facing and really understand if they can add, tolerate the added burden of chemotherapy if they're going to have, you know, ongoing cognitive decline that's not going to allow them to care for themselves when they might be vulnerable um, in the setting of chemotherapy, then, you know, that's not right, the right option for them. Um, otherwise, I think we need to recognize these comorbidities and ensure that we are reminding our patients to see their cardiologists, their primary care doctors, and all the other doctors that they need to see to keep the rest of their bodies healthy, because we could give them medications that treat their prostate cancer all day, but if they end up having a heart attack and dying, um, no, they're not dying from their prostate cancer, but they might've been on medicines that could have maybe made that either lower likelihood or, or hopefully prevented it. And it is important because we are doctors on their team that we remind them, you know, you're not just prostate cancer, you're a whole person and you do have other things that you need to, to pay attention to. 
one of the things that's in the chat and deserves mention as well is the role of mental health and um, you know making sure that we're meeting those goals and making appropriate referrals to counselors and or psychiatrists depending on what they need. So that was brought out in the chat and I didn't I can't remember to say everything that's important in the multi D model, but certainly that's an important component. Hundred percent. No, I think we've heard some great true multi-D um, points raised here by both of you. So thank you. Um, you know, the other the other area as we were thinking about the whole patient um, that that we need to be mindful of, particularly in the era of emerging agents, um, is this term that's been increasingly utilized of financial toxicity. You know, the 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 negative impact that the cost of care here, cancer care, has on our patients. Um, and that just seems to be escalating even with our newer and newer options that we have available for patients. Um, you know, Todd, how do you see this um, being integrated? Uh, who should be having these conversations? And, and um, you know, what do we, how do we meet our patients on this issue and their caregivers? Yeah, it's, it's a big deal. Um, you know, on, honestly, I, I, um, it's not something that I routinely bring into my practice, but I need to. And I think that's the point. And I'm glad you raised this issue here is, is patients are experiencing financial toxicity like we wouldn't believe. And Steve, you, you know, you and Dan Joyce did this really great study that was recently published in Journal of Urology, where you surveyed patients with um, metastatic prostate cancer and showed that over 50% were experiencing financial hardship. And patients are not buying the things they would normally buy and they cannot buying basic goods and it's changing their lives. And it's a direct cause of the treatments that we provide. And there's no way around that with the, the way that our system is currently set up. And so the, the change that for us is at least to be cognizant of it. There, there are tools for us to ask about this. There, there are tools that are implemented in many health systems and many clinics that ask about you know, how their treatment is imp impacting their lives to ask about food security. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's really important. And, and there are, I think, some really innovative strategies that are, that are being offered. There, the, um, you know, Ruchika Tawar at Vanderbilt, um, she, she did a really cool study looking at the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drugs, which is a pharmacy that I'm sure many of us have recommended to patients because it offers, based on some model that I still don't understand, <laughs> offers many drugs at a far lower cost. And so abiraterone, for example, was was shown in a journal of clinical oncology publication to, to the, the concept was if abiraterone in Medicare was prescribed through this pharmacy, Medicare would save some massive amount of money, but perhaps more importantly, definitely more importantly, I think, patients would save $25,000 per year out of pocket. So huge sums of money and we need to be innovative. And first we need to be paying attention to this. Yeah, I, I would wholeheartedly agree. Awareness being our first point and then looking for innovative strategies for financial assistance programs and other things um, so that we don't overlook, you know, the whole, the whole patient and their experience. Um, this concludes our panel discussion. Um, I want to really thank each of the three panelists. That was wonderful. Um, appreciate the time and and most the expertise that you are each brought to to the questions and the answers. Thanks for providing thoughtful commentary. Um, so this concludes our program this evening. Again, 
Thank you very much for joining us uh, and enjoy the rest of your evening.